Welcome to Blunt History, a podcast dealing with the history of the war on drugs, told, well, bluntly. We think it'll have you saying, what the F? We're your hosts, Natalie Brennan and Stina Perkins. Remember when we said we were going to do Reagan all in one episode? Yeah, well, Reagan had two terms and did a whole bunch to add to this conversation, so... We tried to fight it, but here we are. Last episode, we talked about phase one of Reagan's war on drugs, marijuana. The second phase of Reagan's war takes on a new target, crack. Well, let's start with cocaine. At first, cocaine is advertised as a trendy drug for white people. Time magazine ran a cover in 1981 with a martini glass filled with cocaine with the title, quote, high on cocaine, a drug with status and menace, end quote. But this narrative quickly shifts to a crack crisis. In 1982, there are less than 100,000 arrests for cocaine and heroin. By 1990, this number reaches close to 750,000 arrests. Yeah, so let's talk about where this drastic shift comes from. The country had already been riding a wave of anti-drug sentiment. We discussed it last episode, how parents were mobilizing against marijuana fervorously. And then there were the deaths of two young black athletes, Len Bias and Don Rogers, who both died from cocaine-related incidents. The media really played up these stories. And once again, despite the fact that most drug use was among whites— The public's fear was targeted towards racial minorities. These sentiments helped push repressive laws and practices. We say practices because the war on crack became more than the war on crack. It became a war on gangs. But actually, the war on gangs was just a way to wage a war on urban youth of color. Donna Murch, in her article, Crack in Los Angeles, Crisis, Militarization, and Black Response to the Late 20th Century War on Drugs, argues that, quote, defining the war on drugs as a war on gangs justified the criminalization of everyday life in black and brown Los Angeles. Modes of dress, movement, color of shoelaces, hand gestures, and mere association became defined as prosecutable offenses, end quote. We're going to be coming back to California a lot in this episode. It's really where we see a lot of the war on drugs heat up. The California prison population in 1980 is 20,000. And by 1990, it's 80,000. It quadrupled in 10 years. In 1979, the LAPD created a program called CRASH, Community Resources Against Street Hoodlums. It played a leading role in this criminalizing of bodies of marginalized youth in L.A., And then there was a following program called Operation Hammer. Between 1987 and 1990, 50,000 minority youth were arrested in L.A. The Los Angeles police chief at this time, Daryl Gates, literally advocates for shooting occasional drug users. So it's a period of national stress. The Supreme Court is swayed by public opinion to do whatever means necessary to end the epidemic and approves a range of intrusive government practices like warrantless searches. At the federal level, 1986 becomes a pivotal year in the war on drugs. It's an election year and the Congress quickly passes another law, the Anti-Drug Abuse Act. The Anti-Drug Abuse Act. One of the most critical aspects of this law is the new mandatory minimum sentences it created for federal drug violations. Right, and these mandatory minimums show varying degrees of seriousness depending on the drug. 
As we mentioned, cocaine was depicted as trendier, higher class, white people drug. Crack was seen as an epidemic in urban, marginalized communities. These sentiments were reflected in the ways the laws were written. For five grams of crack cocaine, there is a five-year mandatory minimum sentence. For 500 grams of cocaine, there is the same sentence of five years. Five grams versus 500 grams for the same sentencing. To put that more bluntly, you can have 100 times more the amount of cocaine on you than crack and get the same exact penalty. That is literally so much cocaine. (laughs) So So much. much. (laughs) This is where we see the war on drugs more directly, more bluntly, become a racialized issue. These laws were written for possession of drugs. Mostly, we've been looking at laws that were targeting sellers, traffickers. Now we see mandatory minimum sentences for drug possession. This was racialized sentencing, and it disproportionately leads to mass incarceration for nonviolent drug users who are of color. The bill writers knew this impact. First of all, let's pause and acknowledge that this law was passed by the 99th Congress, which was majority Democratic. It was introduced by the Democratic House leader. So just a reminder, despite the fact we're in the Reagan administration, Democrats were creating these destructive laws, too. But I digress. The point is that these bill drafters knew the impact this law would have in creating a state of mass incarceration written in the bill. It says, and I quote, It is projected that by 1993, the federal prison system will be approximately 93% greater than the system's rated capacity, end quote. So they very well know the effect of mandatory minimums. This was the goal. And they weren't wrong. In 1982, the federal prison population was about 400,000. And by 1994, it's 1,000,000. To put that in perspective, from 1925 to 1970, the population always remained under 200,000. So it wasn't just a steady increase. It was a massive escalation. Yeah. It took a while for the crack coke disparity to receive attention. Edward James Clary was arrested for crack, and after receiving his mandatory minimum sentence, he argued that the law violated his Fifth Amendment right. The district court sided with him, agreeing that the crack cocaine disparity violated the equal protection component of the Fifth Amendment due process clause, and even said that the crack statute, quote, has been directly responsible for incarcerating nearly an entire generation of black American men for long periods, usually during the most productive time of their lives, end quote. And then the Supreme Court had this great moment to overturn these racist laws in the 1994 case, United States versus Clary, and instead claimed that Clary wasn't offering enough new information towards his defense. It took until 2010 for this clause to be overturned. In 2010, a Fair Sentencing Act was passed, and it replaces the 100 to 1 gram disparity with an 18 to 1 gram crack to cocaine ratio. Michelle Alexander, the author of The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness, talks a lot about discretionary policing. This is a blatant example of discretionary policing. The Fair Sentencing Act also eliminated the five-year mandatory minimum sentence for crack. This was 24 years later. 24. 
There was so much damage in those 24 years. Yeah, let's get into that. We referenced earlier that we'd be coming back to California's history a lot in this episode. I think we're headed back there. In the 80s and the 90s, there was a victim's rights movement in California, specifically targeting child molestation. Yeah, in the early 1990s, there were these two kidnappings of young girls that grabbed national attention. Most notoriously, the death of 12-year-old Polly Class in 1993. Who was killed by what the media called a career criminal. He was on probation after a previous kidnapping and had other drug and alcohol-related charges. And the sentiment at this time was, this should never happen again. Criminals are repeat offenders, and if we let them out, they will continue repeating the same crimes. As we have stated again and again in this series, the bodies of white women are used in order to characterize national threat. The case of Polly is tragic. We're not undermining that. But the media really sensationalized these stories and created a national panic. This is problematic in and of itself because the very notion of repeat offender shows that there's something wrong with the system. If the system is supposed to be rehabilitating, there would be no presence of repeat offenders. Right. So there's some inherent issue already going on, but this isn't what is addressed. Instead, harder legislation is proposed. Specifically, the 1994 three strikes law in California. Three arrests and you're in for life. The New York Times has a great video called The Making of the Three Strikes law, where they do a great job of talking about how the intent of this law led to a state of mass incarceration. Ten years after the law was enacted, the data was stark. Nearly half of the three strikes inmates were serving 25 to life sentences for nonviolent crimes. This law, I think, did not do what the voters intended. It completely overreached and resulted in judges having to meet out sentences that were disproportionate to the criminal conduct. He's accused of stealing a slice of pizza from a group of children at a beach pizza parlor. Life in prison. The media, which had fueled the public anger that led to the law, now had a field day with the most extreme cases. There was the pizza thief, the cookie thief, the bicycle thief, all received 25 to life sentences for petty crimes because of more serious crimes in their past. The question that's being raised is, is this really a good idea? The three strikes law ended up populating our prisons, which are grossly overcrowded, with petty thieves and drug addicts. So these high-profile kidnapping cases were used to gain support for the law, but how the law worked in practice was locking away people with nonviolent arrests. Right, so the worst cases were portrayed as the typical cases. Philip Jenkins writes extensively about this in his piece. But this wasn't just in California. It's time for Clinton. It's time for Clinton. (laughs) This is a point in the podcast where we would like to stop and address pretty directly once again that liberals were instrumental to the war on crime and drugs. When we say this, we are absolutely talking about Bill Clinton. And we're coming full circle here. In the first episode, we definitely alluded to how detrimental Clinton's three strikes law was. Because they were, and this is what we've been waiting to talk about. (laughs) Let's just play the 1994 address. Hit it. But while Americans are more secure from threats abroad, I think we all know that in many ways we are less secure from threats here at home. Every day the national peace is shattered by crime. In Petaluma, California, an innocent slumber party gives way to agonizing tragedy for the family of Polly Class. Violent crime and the fear it provokes 
are crippling our society, limiting personal freedom, and fraying the ties that bind us. The crime bill before Congress gives you a chance to do something about it, a chance to be tough and smart. Now, those who commit crimes should be punished, and those who commit repeated violent crimes should be told. When you commit a third violent crime, you will be put away and put away for good. Three strikes and you are out. No one says it better than Frank Zimring, a professor of law at UC Berkeley, who states that it's an angry era of American criminal justice, where we transition from lock them up to throw away the key. Clinton signs the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994. Which allots $9 million towards new prisons. No, billion, $9 billion. $9 billion dollars towards new prisons. And then $6 billion for crime prevention programs. I wonder how much is allocated towards education during this <laughs> time. Unclear. Anyway, this particular law allows you to prosecute someone as an adult when they're 13 years old. It also expands the federal death penalty. Doubles mandatory minimums for sex offenders. And most notoriously, enacts a three-strikes law without parole for repeat offenders. Some statistics for you. Under Clinton's eight-year term, he contributed to the addition of 225,000 more prison and jail inmates than under Reagan's term. This law was so detrimental. And in California, what was worse is that I believe that misdemeanors can count as part of the three-strikes law. Which contributes to the fact that more than half of strikers are incarcerated for non-violent offenses. Which is all to say that drug charges fit into the amount of people who are locked up for life because of the three strikes laws. In California, black people make up 7% of the population, 28% of the prison population, but about 45% of three strikers. This is disproportionate sentencing. As we know, black people and white people use drugs at the same rates, and if anything, the statistics for white drug use is higher. There are also issues of who can get an arrest off their record. Totally. And finally, in 2011, the Supreme Court finds that California overcrowding problem to be unconstitutional. In 2012, a proposition restricts the third strike definition of serious or violent crime since this was discretionary. About one-third of prisoners with life sentences were eligible for release. Which only shows how many discretionary sentences there must have been. Entirely. But we want to reiterate, three strikes law is not the beginning of mass incarceration. Not in California, not at the federal level. Hopefully, in this being our last full episode, we have tried to show that mass incarceration, the criminalization of marginalized bodies, and selective policing was well underway. The Clintons have since spoken out and regretted their signing of the bill. Bill Clinton attempted to state that the vast majority of life sentences from this time period were at the state level, not federal, but later more adamantly addressed that signing the bill was a mistake and made the problem worse. Which, like, I guess it's better to take credit for than not take credit for. I guess, but it doesn't do anything to address what it caused, but I guess helps us sort of criticize the law itself and identify the fact that it was wrong. Yeah, absolutely. It's just not like now we're in a period where we're really moving forward. Hopefully don't do it again. Yeah, I think we're on a great path towards not doing things again right now. Our administration seems to really care about moving forward. Yeah, so on that uplifting (laughs) note... Do we ever end on an uplifting note? Yeah, you're right. It's all really quite tragic. 
Next episode, as we more officially sign off, we leave listeners with sources where they can learn more about the war on drugs and crime in modern America, if we have sparked your interest. If you want to see any of the documents we referenced in this episode, our sources can all be found on What The F's website in the Podcasts tab. Like What The F on Facebook to get notified when we release new episodes. I'm Natalie. And I'm Stina. And this was Blunt History.